0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our Wednesday Night Fellowship. Uh, As is our habit, we gather uh, together Wednesday nights for a time of fellowship, some pizza eating and cookies snacking, and uh, tonight it's brownies. Um, You know, Jesus said we can't live on bread alone, uh, not even, you know, bread with cheese on top. Uh, We depend on every word that comes from, you know, the Father's mouth. And so we also come together to hear from God's Word and to be fed by it. Just to give you some context, we've been in a relationship series all semester long. We've been looking at a relationship with God, a relationship with ourselves, a relationship with others, and the relationship uh, with the world. Uh, Starting this week, we're making this transition, sort of thinking about the ways that we relate to the world around us. Next week, we're going to be talking about the ways that we relate to our work and our rest. The week after, the ways that we relate to our talents and this education that you're getting um, at college. But tonight we're gonna talk about this relationship that we have uh, with the natural world around us. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this topic for a number of reasons. The first is that it's really important. According to a large worldwide survey, the number one fear of the millennial generation is not terrorism, it's not nuclear war, it's not unemployment. The number one fear of this generation is climate change and environmental ruination the church isn't talking about things that are most important to you, things that are most important to your friends, if we're not talking about this, we're failing. We're failing to connect. We're failing to communicate. Right? We need to be talking about this issue. Secondly, we need to talk about this issue because Christians ought to be the best at creation care, but sadly, we are sometimes the worst. Right, while there are some wise and winsome voices coming out of the church advocating for creation care, Names like Eugene Peterson, Wendell Berry, Pope Francis, Sister Miriam McGillis. These are some names that come to mind. There are others within the church who are suspicious of climate science, dismissive of environmentalism, and derisive of environmentalists. And the rhetoric coming out of the church can sometimes be unkind, uninformed, and unhelpful. At its very worst, it could put up walls or barriers, preventing people from actually hearing what Jesus has to say, hearing what the Bible has to say and preventing them from coming into our churches. I know this is true partly because it's my story. I wasn't a Christian in college. Some of you already know that. I was a wannabe Buddhist at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And one of the reasons why I identified this way in college, as a wannabe Buddhist, as someone who was spiritual but not religious, is because in college I had never met a Buddhist who was against the environment. But somewhere along the line, I got the impression that Christians were Now, I don't know where I got this idea. Maybe it was overhearing Christians on campus mocking Greenpeace activists, calling them liberals and tree huggers. Or maybe it was seeing someone on TV shouting drill, baby, drill with like a cross around their neck. I don't know where I got the idea. I just know that I had it. And what I picked up on campus or from the media on radio or TV is that Christians don't love what I love. Or they don't care about the things that are really important to me. Therefore, I could never be a Christian. I don't think like that. I don't talk like that. I don't want to be like that. Well, I know that my experience is not unique. Maybe you feel this way. Or maybe your friends feel this way, which is why they're not here tonight. right? My initial reaction is to that is I, I get it. right? I understand. But I also want to right some wrongs tonight. I want you to know that what the Bible has to say is really good news. And its good news uh, includes this topic as well. I'm grateful to the many men and women who helped me to see that. But the Bible is not at odds with my love for the environment. On the contrary, it sustains it and it roots it in a firm foundation. You could say really fertile soil. You do not have to choose between loving Jesus or loving the earth. These two things do go together. I hope you see that from God's Word tonight. There are three questions that I'm asking of it and I hope to answer. First, where do we fit in the created order? This is a relationship series after all, so I'm asking, how do we relate to it? How do we relate to the natural world? How do we fit in? Secondly, what's our responsibility to the natural world? How are we supposed to rule it or steward it? And thirdly, what is creation waiting for? What's a groaning for, longing for, looking forward to? Guiding our discussion tonight will be Genesis 1, 1 to 3. This is a, the first words that come out of the Bible. It's a passage that may be familiar to you. Even if you've never read the Bible before, there's a chance that you are familiar with this passage. Sometimes familiarity can be blinding. And so I'm going to pray before we read that God would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to maybe see what is right there but we've missed. Okay? So let's come to him and pray now. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for bringing us together, gathering us together again on a Wednesday night. Thank you for the gift of friends. Thank you for the, the gift of food. And thank you for the gift of your son and your spirit. Lord, I pray that in this time tonight, as we turn our attention to your word, you would illumine our uh, the text and give us eyes to see uh, what's there, ears to hear what it is you have to say, hearts that are sensitive to your word. and ready to receive and believe and apply these teachings to our lives. We ask that you would do these things for your glory and for our good, for the good of your world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Where do we fit in? Let's ask, answer that question as we turn to Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. I have printed this passage out on sheets that are around the room. So we're not going to be projecting the the words up here tonight. Um, It's a lengthy passage. But what I will do is, as we go along, because it's so long, you might get lost in it. We're just going to, I have a a graphic, as it were, to play through as I read through. So if you even want to look up here, you can pay attention to this. Okay? But here's the passage Genesis 1 1 uh, to 2 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. As we come to the end of this passage, we have an answer to our initial question Where do we fit in? Right? We fit in here, right? Day six towards the very end of this creative process. human beings are not just the last item on a laundry list. As you can see from this emerging picture, we are part of a created order. In the beginning, the world was tohu and bohu in the Hebrew. It was without shape, and it was void. But God gets to work. Out of chaos, he creates a cosmos. He creates spaces, and then he fills them. He creates kingdoms, and then appoints kings and queens, as it were, to rule over them. He creates government. There is beauty and order and design, and it is good. Indeed, with the very last puzzle piece pressed into the corner, it's very good. It's whole. It's complete. Where do we fit in? We fit in here, right? As creatures of the sixth day. We do not exist outside of the created order, we exist within it. Not apart from creation, but a part of creation. We are an important piece of a greater, interconnected, interdependent whole. Right? Creation doesn't belong to us. So, you can see, right, we belong to it. We belong within it. The Bible emphasizes our connection to creation in various ways. It does so, first of all, by placing us within the bounded created order, as we've seen tonight. However, it does so in other subtle, like more subtle ways. As you read through this passage, Genesis 1 1 to 2 3, we see that human beings shared the same birthday. As the creeping things and the crawling things, right? The beasts of the earth. Things that are born on the same day, we call brothers, sisters, twins. If you're in the South, you would say we're kin, right? We'll get to this in a minute. But before human beings are kings over or for creation, we are kin with creation. Kinship precedes kingship. In the following passage, in your Bible, Genesis 2, 4 to 23, the Bible underscores our kinship with creation in two other ways. In Genesis 2, 7, we read that God forms Adam from the ground. But this is something that God uh, does with all the other animals as well. Genesis 2, 19 reads, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call As Carol Newsom, an author, writes, we have common ground because we are all common ground. All are from dust, and to dust all return, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3. Right, we're born on the same day. We're made of the same stuff. But on top of that, we drink the same water. We breathe the same air. We depend upon the same divine breath to give us life. We have more in common with the greater animal kingdom than we might care to admit. Again, before we are kings over creation, we have a kinship with creation. This is a biblical principle. In order to rule rightly, you need to know where you come from. You need to know who you belong to. Kinship comes before kingship. When God liberated his people from Egypt and they started pining for a king like the nations around them, God said to them, When you come to the land that your Lord God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Now why is that? Well, it's this. Kings who forget that they're kin quickly and very easily become tyrants. Kings who forget that they are, first of all, kin, become tyrants. And we see evidence of that all around. People who have forgotten their their people and their place very quickly, very easily exploit and abuse them. I submit to you tonight that our environmental problems are ultimately the result of a spiritual problem. It stems from our sin and is rooted in our pride. We are not a humble people. Humility comes from the Latin word hummus, meaning earth. To be humble means to be close to the earth. And this, humility, is something that we lack. We lack closeness. We lack connection. Our kinship with creation has been fractured. Kingship has gone to our heads we see ourselves over creation and no longer really a part of it. We have forgotten where we fit in. It seems to me that we often relate to the natural world like a kid peering into an aquarium, right? I'm out here and all the live things are inside that class. All the algae and the fish poop and the pollutions in there, not out here. Right? Not with us outside of the tank. But that's not how the Bible portrays things at all. It says that we are very part of the created order. What we do to it affects us. What we do to ourselves affects it. Because we're part of an interdependent system. Right? God designed it that way. Which is why when we breathe out good, we reap good. But when we breathe out curses, we reap whirlwinds. God created an order, an interdependent system of which we are a part. Within it, not outside of it. This is where we fit. But then comes the question, how are we supposed to rule over it? How are we supposed to steward it? What is our responsibility? Well, this brings me to point number two. How are we supposed to relate to the natural order? We see where we fit, but how are we supposed to relate And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, verse 28 tells us that God wants us to fill the earth and to subdue it. Just as God brought order out of chaos, He wants us to do the same. The paradigm for this sort of bringing order out of chaos. Right, the paradigm for that kind of work is that of the gardener. A gardener is sensitive to soil conditions and to seasons and to species of life. A gardener is intimately involved with his work. You could say he gets his or her hands dirty. A gardener knows how to create spaces full of life and color, right, teeming with beauty and goodness. A gardener, in many respects, is like God. Not only are we to fill the earth and to subdue it, we see too in verse 28 that we are to exercise dominion, right? to exercise kingship over the fish of the seas and the birds of the air and every living thing that moves on the earth. Now kingship here is conditioned. It doesn't mean that we can do whatever we feel like or want to do. We are to exercise our kingship. We are to rule always and forever as God's image bearers, which is to say to rule, right to exercise kingship in the same ways that he would rule, to do like him. This means that we are supposed to rule, first of all, wisely. We need folks in the agriculture school and in the Rubenstein school to figure out good farming and forestry practices. We need geology students like Aaron to know the foundations we're building our buildings on and where to erect dams or where we need to tear them down. We need food system majors like Will to figure out how to best feed our growing population while also protecting natural resources. We need zoology majors and animal science majors to know how to care for the world's creatures, whether domestic or wild. The list goes on and on. But the point is we are supposed to rule wisely. We're supposed to rule well-educated and well-informed. But we're also to rule as loving stewards. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. The earth is God's. right? It belongs to Him. We belong to Him. It doesn't belong to us. God has given us the responsibility to care for it like he would, right? to rule over it as stewards, right? as his image bearers. In the words of Professor uh, Naomi Oreskes, to the extent that God has given man a special place, it is the place of cooperator with God and the work of creation. But this is a responsibility as much as a right, a splendid universal communion that entails an obligation of care. Reading Genesis 1, we discover that human beings are blessed on the sixth day, but we often overlook the fact that the, creature, that the creatures of sky and sea receive the exactly the same blessing. If you look at verse 22, God says, Be fruitful. And multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. See, part of what it means to rule as God's image bearers here on earth is recognizing that we are living amongst creatures who are blessed before we even come into existence. Before we even take to the stage. We cannot undo God's prior blessings as his image bearers. We don't have the rights of executive veto power. Part of what it means to rule as God's image bearers means that we are going to love what He loves, that we are going to bless what He blesses, and we're going to delight in what He calls good. Another dimension of ruling as stewards, as kin slash kings, another dimension of exercising our responsibility well, is to care for life that is radically different from our own. See, all across the animal kingdom, creatures know how to care for their own. You don't have to be an animal science or zoology major to to know this or to figure this out. Right? Lions care for their cubs. Seals care for their pups. Eagles care for their eaglets. Right? Human beings take care of their sons and daughters. However, you will never see a lion take care of a seal. You'll never see a seal take care of an eagle. You'll never see an eagle raise some other creature. However, human beings are different. Human beings care for their own, for sure, but they don't just care for their own. Of all the species on planet Earth, we are the only ones... Who take care of creatures that don't look like us or think like us or walk like us or anything. We're the only ones. Part of that, I believe, is because of that we're made in the image of God. That we've been endowed with this power, with this capacity to care for things that are radically different from us. We don't just care for our own. We also look out for the lion cubs and the seal pups and the eaglets and so on and so forth. Something very special about I saw this power on awesome display one day as I was walking from the Gutterson parking lot to the Davis Center. On my way, I saw two female UVM students hunched over on the sidewalk. I'm not used to seeing UVM students hunched over on the sidewalk, so I walked up and was like, is everything okay? But as as soon as I got there, I saw that they weren't just okay, they were doing fine. They were doing great. They were outstanding. Because what these two female students were doing is they were picking up worms, and they were moving them to safety. It had just rained the day before, and so all these earthworms were littering the sidewalks, and they are getting squished by people walking by. But two image bearers of God were on their hands and knees outside the Davis Center, moving worms from the sidewalk into the grass. And in a glimpse, in the flash of a moment, I caught a glimpse of power and gentleness. I saw the beautiful love of image bearers loving a radical other. I caught a small glimpse of what God is like. This brings me to our third and final point. What is creation waiting for? What's it groaning for? See, in the beginning, God created a good world. He created a beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden. And he put us in the center of it. And he gave us some instructions, right? Water it, care for it, cause it to flourish and to grow. Not unlike a sprinkler system that I might put in my backyard, right? Wanting to water it and to cause it, right, to flourish and to grow. In some respects God is saying to us at the beginning, let all of my love and my wisdom and my goodness flow into you and then let it flow out of you. Enriching all of the life all around you. And this worked for a while. But an anti-God attitude infected Adam and Eve, and it has infected everyone since. And consequently, consequently, they were disconnected from God, and we grow up disconnected from God. We've been cut off from the source of love and goodness, etc., It's not flowing into us. And because it's not flowing into us, it's not coming out of us. We've grown dry and everything around us has gone dry too. But God still wants a good green earth. That's still his desire, as it was from the beginning. And the way to do that is not by bypassing the sprinkler system. The way that God is going to get his good green earth is by hooking up what got disconnected. The way to make all of this good again is by making this God-man relationship good again, by hooking us back up so that his love could flow into us and, like that sprinkler system, flow out of us once more, right, watering the earth. In Romans 8, Paul writes that the creation has been subjected to futility, but will someday be set free from its bondage to corruption, and it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Romans 8.22 reads, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." That might sound confusing at first, but what Paul is essentially saying is what I've just described. Creation cannot wait. It's so excited for God to reconcile us to himself. Because it follows that when our relationship gets renewed and reconciled, others are going to fall into place and they are going to experience blessing and healing and redemption too. Connected back to the source of goodness and love and beauty, right, right? It's going to come out of us as well, and creation is going to be the recipients of that goodness. It's going to experience redemption as we are redeemed. In so many words, we will love because he first loved us. When that relationship gets righted, all of these other relationships will too. Where does this leave us for tonight? How do we put this into place? How do we sort of act on what we've heard? Well, instead of the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle, which is obvious, (laughs) do that. Let me leave you with three other R's, okay? In addition, right, to reduce, reuse, recycle, here are three other R's for you to consider. First, let's repent. Let's change course. We cannot continue to treat the world Uh, as if it has an infinite amount of resources, because it doesn't. Let's admit where we've gone wrong. Let's admit where we've failed to care for creation well, where we've failed, right, to image the love of God, not just to him and to one another, but to the world around us. Let's turn to him. Let's repent. Let's go home. Let's go back to God. Because unless we do that, we're just going to be operating out of our own strength. And we're going to get burned out. If we want to water the earth, as it were, right, to extend that metaphor, we've got to get connected to the source, first of all. Otherwise, we're dry, and everything around us is going to be dry, too. Get connected to the source, first of all. Repent. Turn to Him. Secondly, let's recreate. Let's recreate. It's hard to care about something that you don't love. David Attenborough, who's a famous voice on a lot of nature programming, Planet Earth 1 and 2, this new one called Art Planet, he recently said in an interview, if you start your program by saying, I'm now going to tell you about doom and gloom and then all the catastrophes that you silly people have started, you aren't going to get anywhere. You've lost your audience. Before people are concerned about something, you have to persuade them to love it. I'll say that one more time. Before people are concerned about something, you have to persuade them to love it. That's the genius of the Planet Earth series. It makes you fall in love. It's hard not to as you watch it. Recreate. If you're going to love God's creation, you need to spend time with it, just like you would a person. Get outside. One thing I've learned is that people won't appreciate something as much until they've experienced it, writes evangelical pastor Try Robinson. He continues, experiencing the outdoors is something people need to do in order to develop a passion to properly care for it. I can personally attest to that. I didn't know anything about Vermont's rivers or streams. I didn't care a lick about them until I started fly fishing on them. And now I care a lot. I want them to be healthy. Not just for my sake, but for yours and for my daughter's, right? But it took spending time on it. I didn't love it until I spent time on it. Edward Brown, in his book, Our Father's World, writes, What we don't appreciate, we won't care about. What we don't care about, we won't try to fix or save. What we don't appreciate, we won't care about. what we don't care about, we won't try to fix or to save. So friends, recreate. If you can't get outside, stay inside and watch Planet Earth one or two. Watch the latest series on Netflix, all right, our planet. Flora and I were just talking about it the other day, um, whales spiraling in this almost nautilus pattern to contain krill and then jumping up in the middle right to eat them. It's incredible. Or these birds sort of doing this like little dance, you know, singing this song and dance routine to woo the girl. It's hilarious. It's amazing. I, I, I'm obsessed. <laughs> right? I love the show. I want you to love it, too. You will fall in love with cre- the creation. You will fall, I think, in love with the creator, too. Watch these shows. If you repent and you recreate, you will likely end up with this third R which is reveal. Repent, recreate, reveal. When you stoop down to move worms to safety, you remind us of the greatness of God who condescended and stooped down to our level to save us. When you behold the beauty of a rainbow trout, you mimic the delight of God who painted it by hand. When you adopt a rescue animal, you give us a glimpse of a God who rescues us and who cleans us up and gives us a home. When you plant gardens, you remind us of a God who makes life out of dust. When you reuse or recycle, you give us a glimpse of a God who finds something valuable, something of worth, in what the world calls Trash. When you wake up early on a powder day and you skin up and you ski down, laughing as puffs of snow hit your face, your laughter echoes with the laughter of God who made the body, who made the mountains, who made the trees, who made the snow, and calls all of it good. When you delight in God's creation and you work to love it and to serve it, to sustain it, You give us all a glimpse of the God whose image you and we bear. Kinship comes before kingship. Kinship comes before kingship. We rule always and forever as God's image bearers with the mandate to love, to bless, and to delight in what he loves, he blesses, and he delights in too. Repent, recreate, and then reveal. Let's pray.